welcome to another episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Chris and Jason to talk with us about web performance. Chris and Jason, can you give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Who am I? A question I've asked myself many times. Yeah, I'm Jason Miller, uh, underscore develop it on Twitter. Um, the non underscore develop it on Twitter is a woman in Australia who makes jewelry. Um, great jewelry, by the way. Add for her. I believe she's also in tech too, so there's like some interesting crossover there. Uh, I have not ordered <laughs> on the list. Uh, yeah, so I'm on the Chrome team, uh, DevRel, and I work on some things relating to web performance, some things relating to JavaScript performance, and then some other things relating to just general performance. Uh, trying to think of what else. Do you do anything besides performance? Nope. nope. <laughs> Science is everything. Yeah, pretty much. Performance artist. That's what I am. <laughs> this is street art. That's it. Yeah, I am. Most people will, will potentially know me from Preact. Uh, so that's, I guess, my claim to fame. Awesome. And what's your favorite happy hour beverage? Oh, uh, a gin and tonic. It's a healthy pour. It's a long More episode. gin in this than you would guess. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're an alcoholic, in which case, cheers. Not enough. Cheers. <laughs> All right, Chris. Uh, hi, yeah, I'm, I'm Christopher Baxter. Uh, I'm a software engineer at Google, um, I think is my official title. I never remember anymore. But uh, what I tend to work on, um, so uh, I work on high level objectives to try to make the web better. That sounds really generic. Um, so I'll give some examples. One of my objectives is to make the internet 1% faster every year for all devices and all sessions. So a lot of that work means working with frameworks, working with individual teams, or working with domains that happen to be outliers or slower at certain things. and. Uh, it also means working in standards um, as necessary or um, working on uh, network level things if that's what's needed. So whatever I need to do to make the internet 1% faster every year, um, that's my job. My favorite happy hour beverage would definitely just be plain old beer. I love beer. I think it's like the greatest alcohol beverage in the world. Um, so that that is definitely what I'll be having. All right. Well, let's also give introductions of today's panelists. Mars, you want to start? Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Mars Julian. I'm a senior software engineer in the Bay Area, and all thoughts are my own. I'm Stacy London. I'm a senior front-end engineer at Atlassian, and all my thoughts are Mars's. My name is Brian Holt, and I do not work at a well-known vacation rental company. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. And all my thoughts are Stacy's. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. So what did we decide today's keyword is? Speed. Speed. All right. Very suiting. So if we say the word speed at all in this episode, we will all take a drink. All right. Well, let's dive right in. I'm very curious to hear everyone's thoughts on why is web performance so important these days? Like you, you heard Jason and Chris really in their introductions, really just talking about only performance. So why is it so important? One uh, engineering manager at Netflix told me that I had to really worry about it. And so, uh, you know, ever since then, and then I went to LinkedIn and I had this other manager that I talked to and I just, <laughs> he just kept talking to me about web performance. So just based on those facts alone, I guess it was important. <laughs> Sounds like some good people to listen to, Brian. Yeah. Well, guess what, Brian? We've brought him here today. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> for for those that are uh, who are not briefed on this, I worked with Chris at Netflix, and then we worked together again at LinkedIn, <laughs> and then he abandoned Microsoft on me. Uh, I think it's important because. Uh, I mean, there's there's a whole slew of reasons. Probably the most important to me personally is that uh, <clears throat> web performance is making uh, your website accessible to everyone or at least more people, right? If you write heavy websites, it's not accessible to people on crappy internet, crappy devices. I mean, not even crappy, even moderate ones, right? So um, making it accessible to the general populace is, for me, the most important reason. There's a bunch of other reasons like making money and bullshit like that, but, you know, 
that's why I think it's important. Yeah, it's user experience. It's the whole reason we build anything. We're not we're building it for people to use. And if it's not fast and they're having a crappy time, like it doesn't matter how beautiful it looks or how uh, features you how many features you have. If if it's not fast, people are are going to be upset or they can't use it and then they can't do what they need to do. And some of that's really important stuff like uh, I don't know, like banking or things that you know give them access to things. Um, that are online government services, things that are really critical to people to be able to do. So yeah, very similar as Brian. And also just thinking of it, even from a device perspective is everything's going more and more on the mobile device. And I think about that too, is just trying to deal with your connectivity, whether it be low latency, anything that can be happening on, on a mobile device, definitely important. Yeah, I think I, I really like the idea of uh, access to information. For me, web performance is about the, the ability for people to be able to access the world's greatest resource, which is the internet. Um, if you limit access by making it uh, behind paywalls or behind uh, really expensive devices that are uh, unmaintainable, or even just great network access. My network connection here at home on, uh, when I'm not on Wi-Fi is atrocious. Um, and I wouldn't be able to access um, a, a lot of the websites um, that I think are important uh, for critical information. I feel like my re- reason is uh, unfairly selfish uh, since everybody went with the lovely and absolutely true sort of first tier there, which is making everyone making it so everyone can access stuff. I have sort of had to con myself into that empathy Uh, or at least into feeling that empathy more directly, uh, which is I I have a tendency to, when it is not full nationwide lockdown, uh, work out of coffee shops and in environments where I am intentionally constrained. I will constrain as many resources as I can to shut out distraction as, I mean, if I'm honest, as an ADHD uh, mitigation technique. And uh, so for me, when I'm working in that mode and I need access to a resource and that resource is behind six megabytes of JavaScript that I can't get to download ever over the Wi-Fi, uh, you know, I, that is, that is a frustrating experience. And, you know, I guess it makes it a lot easier to understand how, you know, for me, that's a temporary thing. I can leave the coffee shop or I can turn on LTE on my device and usually get a better experience unless I'm in another country. Um, but for a lot of people, like, that's it. That's the only option that there is. So, like, do you leave your browser running for a day to download a web page? Or do you just not do the thing that was going to better your life? Yeah, I can't imagine just letting a, sitting there waiting for a page to load. Just be like, I'll come back tomorrow. It might be loaded. Dial up. Yeah. That was dial up, right? it, it just, yeah, it really was. And, yeah, thinking back, we cannot go back to those days. It's just, it's impossible. I had one of those free internet providers when I was a kid, when we finally got a computer where it was like, uh, you watch, there was like an ad bar at the top of Internet Explorer Zero or whatever it was, uh, or MSN browser when that was a thing. Uh, and so like for us, like you got your 10 hours per month and that wasn't my 10 hours, that was the family's 10 hours. So that was like, that experience still sticks in the back of my mind, like the whole setup process to get onto the internet and having to make the decision like, is this something that I can do inside of Encarta or do I have to like <laughs> set up internet to do this thing? Oh man, those days. Yeah, you're bringing back memories, <laughs> that's for Compton's sure. Compton's <laughs> Interactive Encyclopedia on CD-ROM. Get off the internet, I need to get a call. Hammering <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on the floor. <laughs> I just remember the 300 baud modem that we had when I was a kid and listening to the dial tone over and over and over. You know, you, because it wouldn't connect the first time or someone called or whatever else happened, you know, and and so then you'd lose your connection and, and that six megabyte JavaScript payload would have taken a week to download on that connection. Imagine the glitched out progress bar in your browser at that point, those green squares going across. But you know what? I bet you that site was so worth it after six days of downloading. I'd also be interested. We've moved past that now and, and we've said, okay, performance matters and we can't wait days to download. What are tools that you are all using, maybe in your companies or even just day to day? What tools are you using to measure performance? 
I guess pat the, our Google friends on the back. Lighthouse is a really nice tool to use. Yes. Plus one on that. I'm a fan. They didn't pay us to say that either. <laughs> they just made it really easy for us to say that. Yeah. So I, I use Lighthouse probably most of the time. Um, I, I guess just developer tools in general. Um, I use the tools built into like Webpack and uh, uh, Parcel and whatever, you know, bundle I'm using to, to make sure that my, my payloads are staying small. Uh, the stuff that came out of uh, LinkedIn from this, uh, that you know, the same asshole manager at LinkedIn called, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, CSS blocks. I mean, that stuff's pretty cool as well. God, Chris, what, what, why do you get your fingers on everything when it comes to web performance? <laughs> I, I can't help it. It's like every time I see any problem at all, all I can think of is, how can I make this a web performance problem? <laughs> bad, it's a bad thing to have as a, a character trait. Chris, are you just an impatient person? You just need everything faster. Absolutely. But I, I'm, it's funny, when I do local development on my machine, uh, Jason can attest to this, my battery on my laptop lasts about 30 minutes. <laughs> and the reason why is I run all my browser tabs in 10x CPU simulation, like slowdown mode. And I throttle all my networks to low-end 3G for anything I'm developing. Um, and the reason why is if it's fast there, it's fast everywhere, right? Like, if it works here, it's probably going to be really fast there. Unfortunately, I started getting a faster machine, so now I have to, like, crank that up a little bit more um, to get real-life uh, real data or closer to real-life data. Um, but it, it reminded me because you were mentioning Lighthouse, um, and I think one of my favorite tools actually is WebPageTest, which I use a ton of, and I think anyone who's interested in performance should. You go to WebPageTest slash easy, um, uh, and you'll get a really simple interface for using WebPageTest, and click the Lighthouse report button on it. Um, and it uses a Moto G4, and you can set the network to what speed you want, but by default, it's a 3G connection. You put a URL in and you find out what it's like to load that site on that actual device. Because when you use Lighthouse locally in your browser, you've got your local CPU horsepower capability or some kind of emulation layer that's trying to emulate what that low-end device or middle-range device is like. But if you use WebPageTest, you're on the actual hardware in the actual data center connecting to the actual servers um, and you can, it makes it really easy to understand and feel the pain um, of, say, that second connection to Google Fonts because you wanted a font that you didn't host. Oh, let's let's get on the web fonts. How how have we not touched on that? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Google Fonts. <laughs> yeah, so web fonts suck. Don't use them. You want to speed up your site? Don't use them. There you go. The thing about web fonts too is it's, it's this weird trade-off. Um, like I've, I've spent way too much time recently trying to make web fonts fast for the series of metrics that just was recently announced. And there's this like weird trade-off that happens with web fonts. So if you load them fast enough, but you still display the font before, and then it swaps over to a new font that causes the entire document to re-render, right? That causes a, a uh, the entire browser to have to repaint that surface and reflow that surface typically too. And that actually can delay input for users because the browser is doing work. So by showing them the flash of content as fast as you could with the old font and then switching to the new font, you can actually make the metrics worse on one side and better on another side um, by doing that, that kind of change. And we, we used to see like flash of unstyled text in those cases, but now even if you don't, that swap can be, I don't know, it doesn't have a name, but like flash of unusable page. It's actually blocking the input at right. that point. Well, so it's, what's interesting is it like for the time that the, the, the installed font on the system is present and showing the page is generally usable as long as the JavaScript or whatever else is there, right? Um, but the browser can render it, it can parse it, it can you can scroll through the document because that's on a, di a different thread. But the moment the font swap swaps over to whatever you loaded, during that swap, the browser now has to completely thrash the entire document. And the more DOM elements you have and the more React providers you have and the deeper your context, the more expensive that transition is and the more time spent to actually display it again. And that time period 
it goes into this thing we call rage clicks. So it's like you go to access the document, you saw it, you go to click it, and nothing happens. So you do it again, you do it again, you do it again, and then finally, hey, there it worked. But it's the wrong button because it shifted down because the font showed up. Chris, what's the recommendation? What do you do? Web fonts, your designer friend has said, hey, we need this great, beautiful font. How do you deal with that? Tell them Comic Sans. That's what you got. Comic Sans is the is the right answer all the time. I think that's that's the best web font in the world. But you have to load it over the internet. You can't use the local copy, of course. Of course. But no, uh, self-host your fonts. You can get them from a provider, self-host them. And I would recommend using font display optional, not even font display swap. And the reason for that is uh, if the font doesn't download in time, it won't swap with font display optional. So you'll never have that rage click scenario, but you will have a scenario where that font doesn't render. The only thing to not use font display optional on our icon fonts, please use SVG instead. But if you are using an icon font, don't use font display optional because if it doesn't show up, then the user gets, you know, a queue that means close, right? Like how are they supposed to know that that queue button means close? Any other tools that you've all found useful? Are there things that are even in your build system. Brian, you mentioned even the packagers, Parcel and Webpack. Are there other things that you all have um, for monitoring, maybe the monitoring the speed? Cheers. 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 I use Lighthouse CI a lot now. I've only used it a few times, but found that one to be a useful one. It's so easy. It even has a built-in server if you're as lazy as I am. It's like, here's my crappy static files. And then it's just like, it's a 91. It's always a 91. It, from that perspective, knowing that it's still just a 91 might not be useful. But if it ever, you know, goes to a 93, then I know. Has anyone used page, page speed insights? I actually think that's a pretty good tool to look at as well. Um, the, the nice thing about page speed insights is it will give you data from Chrome sessions, real world metrics for your website from actual users hitting your website. Um, and not just lab data where you're simulating what people are seeing. You're seeing real world uh, data that way. Speed curve is kind of like that too, right? You guys, you guys are saying speed a lot. Speed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. So the weird thing about PageSpeed Insights is you don't have to have anything installed on your site. It basically just exposes a bunch of data that Google has. Um, and, you know, obviously it's, it's exposing a very small amount of aggregate data about each site. And you have to be a site that's like prevalent enough in that data set for us to have aggregate data. But I always find it interesting, like you'll, you'll do like a lighthouse run or maybe a webpagetest.org slash easy run, grab the lighthouse metrics from there and then check in PageSpeed Insights what the like real world, uh, you know, metrics are. And sometimes they're totally different, right? And it's like uh, you were using threading and as it turns out most of your users are on devices where your background thread ends up on a crappier core and so lighthouse can't emulate that right you're just going to get another cpu core or another os thread um and sometimes those things can have like massively outsized effects or even something weird like screen size if you like you always test your website you know in half your monitor and so your layouts cost x and then it turns out your users are like most users on desktops who are on desktops and they have it full screen because everybody just full screens their apps now. And so everybody's rendering this huge either 1080p or 4k canvas and your metrics are not taken in that environment. So in the wild, your site behaves much poorer. People actually browse their websites full screen. You would be surprised. <laughs> mm. I feel like people need to tweet at us or even just me. I want to know, like, are you viewing websites at full screen? I, I'm baffled by that with the massive monitors. Like you mentioned 4K. I can't imagine browsing, even if I'm doing nothing but just browsing, I'm, I can't look at it that big. So as an anecdotal story, uh, we rolled out a new design in the Preact site in somewhere, I think like September of 2019. It had this angled purple bar um, and it looked you know, we, we tested it over multiple monitors. It was all responsive site. It looked great. And we got an issue like a couple of weeks later where somebody showed it what it looked like on their screen at 4K native res. And it was just like this awkward like div that ended halfway across the screen at a terrible angle. It was like, 
I would never have guessed to test what this website looks like when there are 4,000 pixels. You could have put, you could have put like three of the websites side by side. <laughs> I would just tell him like, you deserve that. You deserve everything that you're seeing right now. <laughs> That's the design, man. <laughs> it's designed to punish you. <laughs> just letterbox it, just black down both sides. <laughs> So Jason, you kept bringing up metrics, uh, obviously when we're, you know, looking at various tools to check page loads, speed, cheers. Cheers. What metrics are important when you're thinking web performance? So one of the ones that I'm interested in right now, and I'm cautious about this because I'm terrible at explaining what it is, um, is called cumulative, cumulative layout shift, uh, and essentially what it tries to measure is during the loading phase of a page, how much did everything jump around and, and move around? Like we talked about rage clicks. One of the things that causes rage clicks is forced synchronous layout. One of the effects of forced synchronous layout is there's a huge opportunity for the page to be here one second and then somewhere else another second, uh, which is roughly as infuriating as the page being unresponsive. Um, and so CLS, I kind of like, uh, as a metric for trying to quantify that effect we see where you're you're loading a page, you get maybe a server-rendered HTML experience that sort of looks like the website uh, and might even be partially interactive, like maybe links are even clickable. But then once the JavaScript finally boots up and it hydrates or re-renders or whatever it's doing based on the tech in use, uh, everything just moves around it, like there's a sidebar now and all of a sudden the header is like in tall mode because immediate query loaded uh and at that point like there are so many websites that fall into the bucket of like you could argue it would have been a better experience to just have a blank white page or a spinner up until the point where the website was actually there because it's just a lie prior um and so cls is like this is not like the only thing the metric is for but it's one way of measuring like how unstable was this all until it finally finished? Very cool. I honestly hadn't even thought about some of that. So that was very insightful. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of new metrics that um, the Chrome team just started speaking about um, uh, pretty heavily that fall under something called Core Web Vitals. Um, and they define what uh, the Chrome team thinks of as a good page experience. And the interesting thing about these metrics is that they are subject to change yearly. So what is defined as the metrics this year are set in stone for a year, but next year may change. There may be new metrics that fall in that category or they might be tightened up or loosened um, based off of input from web developers and from real users. So the, the other two metrics that fall under, under Core Web Vitals, um, uh, Jason mentioned cumulative layout shift. The other ones are first input delay. So first input delay is how long it takes for your site to be able to be interactive in a in a sense from your input only. So if you have JavaScript that's just packing the main thread and you're, you say you've got a really big, large amount of um, uh, re-rendering going on um, during loading, then the site isn't, you can't interact with anything. You've, you've delayed that first input. So that first input delay needs to be less than 100 milliseconds. Um, and then the second, the, the second one, or the third one, sorry, um, is Largest Contentful Paint. Um, and Largest Contentful Paint is a little bit different than some of the other metrics we've talked about, but it's, it's a heuristic based off of what the page looks like. It's when the page looks like it's painted enough for a user to think they could use it. That's the idea. There's math and science and crazy smart people that figured out a formula for that because I, I can't do that. But, uh, but it's pretty cool. So it's like if you have a hero image on your page, it's when the hero image loads. That's CLS. Um, and it roughly works for like 99.999 bunch of nines uh, of websites. And that needs to be less than 2.5 seconds um, at the 75th percentile. I kind of like referring to, forgotten the acronym already, the third one. <laughs> CLS, LCP, FID. LCP, largest contentful paint. I kind of like referring to that as like the new load, right? Because like load was sort of useful if you were tracking metrics in the wild just to know like, hey, you know, when is the page done? But then we all started building a lot more rich JavaScript-based apps and done probably didn't mean when all the images were done, right? Or and, and so all of a sudden like the semantics of like, deferred scripts 
pushing out load events, but async scripts not pushing out the load event kind of seem a little bit arbitrary when you're, we have an application that's controlling the script loading lifecycle. And so um, largest contentful paint is like, let's just assume that the load event doesn't matter, right? It's, it's just like it might be pegged on some image from a CDN that is not even displayed. Uh, so LCP would be like for the actual content that the user hopefully was trying to get to. When did it load? Did that used to be called like the perceived speed or like the perceptual speed? Or is that like the same thing or is it? It's different crazy math. It's like crazy I... smart math applied to that concept. Those people talk to each other. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell on distance from this. I all, this all just falls in the bucket of like lies, damned lies and statistics. And then sort of something comes out as like that. That seems to work okay. Let's use that. Every time I talk to someone who works on those metrics, I caveat, they're really smart people. But when they start talking, I can feel myself not being able to understand about 10 milliseconds into the conversation. <laughs> like It's this like gut instinct of, you're a lot smarter than I am. That's that's pretty cool. I was just, what about TTI? I, I, timed Interactive. That one seems to be geeked. People talk about that one a lot. I would look at TBT, total yeah. blocking time. Uh, again, this whole new set of metrics. These metrics are going to change all the time. But TBT is designed to kind of give an indication of how long script is blocking things in total. Timed Interactive was, is, is really hard to get right for frameworks versus generic web pages. Because web pages are multi-actor, right? You can have three frameworks on the same page. When is interactive? When it, like, is it when all three are done? Is it when the one that's present above the viewport is done? It's really hard to figure that out. Um, whereas TBT is a little bit more uh, easy to understand. It's the amount of time it takes, or the amount of time spent blocking JavaScript execu- JavaScript executions. Yeah, like the, the flaw I like to point out in TBT, and this is not, it doesn't destroy the metric, but just I can use it as a straw person example is, let's say you're using a framework that delegates event handlers. So it registers them all in the document and then fires them into pieces of your application when they're registered. TBT just sees that you have event handlers attached and thinks, oh, it must be interactive. Even though the thing that's doing the delegating might not have access to the actual code that needs to run to make that piece of the application function. So it's sort of, it's the same thing as like you could game the, I think it was Lighthouse's service worker uh, thing at some point by just adding an empty fetch handler. It's like, sure, you're you're dinging the bell for the metric, but like this is not a success story. Uh, I think TVG had a couple of cases like that versus, or sorry, um, TTI had a couple of cases like that. TBT it's like uh, take an average of the amount of work that was being done over um, over a certain period. And it, it will like, I think that the way it's calculated, if you have any chunks of work that are less than 50 milliseconds, it drops those because a less than 50 millisecond work chunk is not going to be bad enough that it will like disrupt clicks or whatever. Like you'll still be able to respond within a hundred ish milliseconds. Um, and so it's, it's more like a sum of the amount of time in which the page would be less than desirably responsive during the loading phase. Yeah, and this 50 millisecond like threshold is kind of this magic number, but it's one that many frameworks have kind of um, pivoted around. So uh, many frameworks are kind of splitting these like big tasks um, into several macro tasks. So micro tasks live within a macro task loop. If you have an event handler that comes in the macro task loop starts for that specific event handler. You could have hundreds of micro tasks inside that macro task, but if it exceeds 50 milliseconds as a whole, users perceive the delay. But what you can do and what many frameworks are starting to do is they say, we've hit this magic number. We've hit 50 milliseconds roughly, or we, we think we're close to that number. So split out from the current macro task and open a new macro task in the future by using a post message or whatever else and continue the work later. Give the browser a little bit of time to respond to the changes that have happened during that calculation window. There's a bunch of other scheduling mechanisms um, in play there too, but the idea is just be a little bit more generous with the time and it helps things like TBT, total blocking time. And Chris, you'd mentioned just 
going to the frameworks, is this a standard that they're trying to follow any JavaScript framework? Is it something that they're following to try and be that 15 milliseconds? I think in general, most frameworks are really aligned about making good experiences. Um, you know, you, you look on, on Twitter, which uh, is a cesspool at times. Um, Never. And it looks like every framework author hates each other or, you know, they, they're, they're catfighting over silly things, right? That's or, true. Yeah, that's true. But in reality, framework authors are actually pretty friendly to one another, right? Because they all share common goals, which is to make good experiences for people on the web. So, yes, a lot of them have aligned around this 50 millisecond time, but that's not because there's like an official standard. It's just based off of research that they've been, you know, that they've done or that other people have done and kind of worked with them to help create this de facto standard. If I recall, the 50 number comes from rail guidelines and a bunch of the research that predates rail guidelines that got sort of absorbed into that, stating that we want to hit interaction response in 100 milliseconds. And so if you assume that your work is chunked into 50 millisecond chunks, you need a up to 50 milliseconds to receive the input because you may have been blocking that entire 50 milliseconds. The breathing room for the browser to go, oh, there's an event, fire it in. And then another potentially 50 millisecond chunk to actually render some stuff and trigger layout. Um, so one thing to keep in mind with that 50 millisecond number is technically it should incorporate time for the browser to do its layout work. So it's not always just about like scheduling user land code. It might be it's essentially scheduling your frame. And funny enough, this is where CSS comes into the equation for a performance thing. Everyone thinks about JavaScript when they think about web performance, but CSS and the layout of your document can actually have a really big impact during runtime, specifically. If you're using something like grid, CSS grids are slow. They're very slow. They're very powerful and very interesting and they provide a lot of functionality and features, but that is a trade-off. And the cost there is that to render out a grid is far more computationally expensive than a flexbox layout or a float-based layout or a static layout. And um, if you you know choosing the right tool for the right thing um, and and kind of picking the thing that that works best for the given scenario lets you get better performance in the end. So yeah, you you spend 35 milliseconds, but because you chose to use grid and subgrid and subgrid inside of a subgrid inside of subgrid, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, the browser needed 400 milliseconds to paint that. But if you yeah, just use float, it's five milliseconds. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up CSS. I think that's one, you know, admittedly, I think a lot of us are really focused on JavaScript and thinking about how to make that performant and then not really just thinking about simple CSS. Like there is simple things that will make your site render a lot faster. And so I'm glad you brought that up. And the grid layout was a good example where I think it, it kind of comes down to trade-offs too. And I think with performance that comes up a lot is you, you do have to make trade-offs. There's things where maybe you need this certain grid layout. So what, how do you best do that? Maybe a float isn't the best thing. I'm curious to hear really from everyone how do you think about these trade-offs when you're thinking about performance, but also building layouts or building applications? I don't know. I think it's a Chrome team problem to me. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but then what happens when they use the Microsoft browsers? That's well, Chromium. Still Google problem. <laughs> no, I, just, I, I think that's such a hard question to answer because I think, um, at least in development or product development, it's really hard to like take a look at the whole document and its layout so that it's up like it's working in a performant way. Um, just because, you know, sometimes it's a fix on top of a fix on top of another fix, um, which is traditionally how it goes. So I think that, like, not enough people pay attention to the performance of CSS, um, which is really interesting. But I also, like, I, this, I don't think this is the answer to everything, but I, I was reading about this CSS property the other day called Contain, which is um, a way of optimizing... <laughs> Jason and Chris are celebrating sort of like this cool CSS property that I just learned about, which sort of tells the document like what parts of the layout affect other parts of the layout or just one part of the, the document affects sort of only the layout internally. So there is like a performance um, optimization there, but also can f solve some like really tricky bugs that I've I found recently, like flex, you know, extending into other parts of the document. But um, 
I guess like just in a, from a product development standpoint, like putting a fix on top of a fix and also working on individual components like the contain CSS property seems really compelling to be able to, to you know, like know in context which DOM elements are sort of like their own separate units. Yeah, if you are, let's say, developing in isolation, like everybody has sort of gravitated towards with Storybook and all these sorts of things where, you, you know, you're working on your sidebar widget thing on its own and then it's going to get stuck into the page. You could make an argument that putting a CSS, like contain strict or contain layout, one of those, you know, more stricter uh, boundaries around that component uh, is going to turn off the types of freebie CSS layout easiness things that a reliance on would cause performance problems. So like, you know, de depending on the height of a widget in a stack of widgets to figure out the total height of the stack of widgets is expensive and it gets uh, more expensive as those widgets increase in complexity. So now every subgrid that you add into your widget or into all of your widgets ends up being layout complexity and cost that hurts the whole stack that they're in. Um, and so contain theoretically, this is where I make everybody sad, uh, Theoretically, contain gives us a primitive for essentially taking like what it might even just be a product boundary and saying, here, like we, we have an organizational product boundary here and we can rely on the fact that these people are going to define the height because they need to. Um, and so we can not use implicit height over here or we don't want style leakage or you don't want, you know, random stuff flying out of one piece of the site and into another piece of the site. Um, one thing I will say about contain, because this is something that is very near and dear to my heart, contain does not have very much usage right now. And there is a uh, cart and horse type situation. Chicken and egg? Cart and egg. <laughs> type. There's an egg situation, basically. Uh, and the, the egg number one is... Uh, if there's no contain strict usage in the wild, especially contain strict, it's, it's really the most valuable of these, um, then it's very difficult to justify having browser engineers work on contain strict optimizations because they're optimizing something that doesn't exist or just isn't used. Uh, and so we saw this like for a short period of time with some of the newer ECMAScript features, like, wow, these are amazing, but like, why would I spend two months optimizing REST spread if 0.001% of websites actually leverage this feature? And we've seen that eventually evolve. I would love for the same thing to happen with contain strict, where we all start using it for maybe for product reasons or for, um, you know, to sort of help us understand, like, this is where the grid stops and this is where this other boundary begins. And now browser engineers can sort of see the usage rising and go, oh, OK, good. Now we can unlock all those performance benefits because currently uh, I'm only aware of two <laughs> that are actually implemented in Chrome. Uh, and I don't think they're implemented in any other browsers. The one is if you modify content inside of a region that has contained strict, that is out of viewport, whether that is for the document or for a subregion scrolled region, um, then it will not invalidate the scroll height of its parent container. So let's say you're using like overlay scroll bars like on the Mac um, and you change some content inside of something that has contained strict that's scrolled away you won't see the scroll bar flashback. And, and it won't spend the CPU time as well right. within the within the browser. Exactly. So like the scroll bar is just sort of like a, oh, wow, it's, it's really working type noticeable thing. And the other one uh, is something that actually somebody, I, I won't name names, but uh, a company that really wanted this feature contributed this to Blink, uh, which is if you have a an element that has sizing, like it has a set width and height and it has contained strict set, and you change its text contents, it's like the dot data property of its first child, and it only has one text child, and it has the same number of characters as it previously did, there will be no layout. Uh, like the layout is, is bounded at the contain strict container. So you can imagine if you had a giant data grid, like an Excel type thing, um, you would want that very specific feature because you want to be able to update text as fast as possible without causing any layout. So that, that optimization exists. But I, I would love to see like all the rest of the optimizations that you can imagine with this, where it's like, okay, I'm going to do like a absolutely positioned layout. And I, I don't want any layout cost unless I touched that DOM node 
that would be the holy grail. I would use that system. Yeah, so I, I work on a design language system, and after reading about this, I'm like, I want to apply this to every container of every component that we have ever created, um, because we have so many issues where we have product engineers that are like moving like negative margins on text because flex is bleeding into the rest of the page. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. This is a mess. So I'm looking forward to using it. I have to get the rest of the team on board, hopefully. Please do use it, because the more people that use it, the more that browser vendors can actually invest in it. All right, good to know. I'll bring that back to the team. And that's the, that's like a general thing. Like that same thing happened with JavaScript, right? Everyone transpiled all their JavaScript down to ES5. That's why ES2017 was slow for features, right? It's not now, by the way, just to clarify, like that situation has been uh, more than remedied at this point. I've actually had to reconvince myself of that recently. Uh, if, if you haven't in a while, go and test how fast the new ES features are in Using ES a map ES. is fast, like, instead <sighs> of building weird, strange, complex objects. REST parameters are two orders of magnitude faster than arguments access of any kind, even non-deopted arguments access. Speed. So you can see what Jason and I talk Shapes. about when we have <laughs> conversations. So what you're telling me is I should go optimize all my code just for, for Chrome. No, for Chris. Optimize it for Chris. <laughs> TurboFan script. <laughs> oh. Actually, so speaking of that, one of the, so we were talking about like tools that we find useful for measuring metrics and stuff. Uh, one thing that I find extremely useful that is not technically a metric, uh, and it's definitely not a you know metric that works in everywhere, is a tool called Deoptigate. And Deoptigate is exposing information that V8 already has internally, um, basically turbofan optimizations and deoptimizations. Uh, and it basically takes something that is a fairly difficult to understand JavaScript uh, engine implementation detail, uh, object shape, and um, property access inline caches and makes it super, super, super easy to understand. Like it literally, you see like there's a picture of your source code and there's like a red box next to the thing that's bad. Uh, and it says, this is bad. This is when it got bad. And it will literally tell you like, this was the reason why it got bad. And so people like me uh, <laughs> can go in and do what is very, you know, quite low level performance optimization, uh, basically using pictures of telephones next to periods in my source code uh, to, to figure out where to spend my time. So that is hugely valuable. If you are at the stage where like JavaScript speed is your primary problem, which I know a lot of people are not. It is not the problem for the vast majority <laughs> of people. Like I think that the, the general thing that people should, should focus on is uh, around the actual impact of their code, using the right tools for the right jobs. So instead of using a giant framework to build a static site that has no interactivity, don't go use Rails or <laughs> text editor. Chris, don't. <laughs> Wait, did he say don't? And then he told me to go use Ruby right after. <laughs> I really don't care what it is as long as it doesn't emit JavaScript. Like, just use the the the, the minimal amount of things that you can to execute the same goal. Do more with less. People will adopt a, a framework, uh, and I won't name names because literally this applies to all of them. Adopt a framework for like a piece of a site, the header, um, and kind of follow to the logical conclusion of like, oh, well, we should do like a migration to this framework. Uh, and oftentimes there are whole parts of your architecture that may not be perfectly suited to that framework, but they, they kind of go along with it just for uniformity. And I feel like that's one case where like, if you're looking at the, the trade-offs that you make when you're when you're trying to get to decent performance, you always want to be explicit when you're making those trade-offs. You don't want to make a trade-off that happened sort of organically as a result of earlier decisions, wasn't actually looked at in isolation. Um, so like, you know, you don't necessarily have to render your whole page using one thing. You could render the interactive parts of your page using that thing and then stick with your current technology or choose a different technology for the surrounding parts or the other parts. I like that you guys both started bringing up frameworks a bit too. How do you think of frameworks in around the performance side of things? Obviously, a lot of people are using frameworks today. 
We've even talked about React being very heavy, and then something called Preact got created. <laughs> How do you all think about frameworks when it comes to performance? Well, I think we all prefer Inferno if, we, if we're talking about <laughs> yeah. drop-in React replacements. Yeah, go really. check out Inferno. <laughs> and, I, and the other thing I was going to say is I know all Google engineers love frameworks. Like, I think yeah. that's that's kind of their jam over there. Yeah, we, tra- we have a measurement that everybody tracks, and at the end of the year, the number of frameworks you've used is the multiplier for your bonus. <laughs> It also oh, you also awesome. have to create chat apps at the same time. So oh right, yeah, chat frameworks apps and chat apps frameworks. Or like the what was the one that Ryan Florence created? The uh, database access performance. DBmon, yeah. DBmon, there, there it is. Yeah, that one. Got it. I just I've probably been drinking too much. I've just been throwing shade this entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's purely normal, man. <laughs> That's probably true. I love frameworks. I think they're all great. That's actually not true. Some of them I don't like writing anymore. It's been great to see some of these larger frameworks like like Ember, like Angular, really take performance more seriously and break things down into smaller pieces and really have stronger considerations for their users without losing that developer experience. Like I feel like that's something that gets lost in the shuffle. Like for context, my entire job now is developer experience. And so I, I disagree with those uh, ideologues that come out and say everything is about web performance. If you are not looking at your DOPS, then you are a piece of shit and you should, right? <laughs> like, I, there, there, there are souls that, that speak in such terms, but uh, I disagree with that because we all, we have just to ship code, right? Like, none of us are out there to, like, try and screw over other people. Or, or, that's, like, a really weird, evil plan if that is your plan. But I appreciate, like, Again, like Ember, like Vue, like React, like Preact, right? Like all these frameworks that are out there. Is like, let's make awesome developer experiences where people can be super productive. And um, we'll use the tooling, we'll use patterns, we'll use teaching to get people into performant, um, performance. It's my favorite made up computer science term, performant web pages and applications and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, to me, like the superpower of frameworks that kind of sometimes gets glossed over is... You can write code that shouldn't be performant and then compile it or run it in a certain way, take its original representation and turn it into the thing that, you know, you would have written if you were the, the stickler for performance. And in reality, I think Rich Harris is the time. king of that, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. Like, like do the thing that's easy and then use magic to get the thing that was hard. Right. It's essentially, it's, you know, going back to it's putting a multiplier in front of your output. And so to me, like, that's the, like, the blindingly obvious future for all of these things is like, you know, I, I hope that in 2022 or whatever, I'm trying to pick a sufficiently far out date, probably haven't done that. Um, in, in 2040, um, in, after the fourth reincarnation of the web, once it's died three times, then I hope that we are all focused on like figuring out increasingly high level authoring formats that we can move to that give us more and more superpowers and are based on more and more substrate of impressive kind of compilery logic that codify all of the learnings that we have from front end into something that we now don't all have to carry with us as baggage, right? So that somebody coming into the industry doesn't need to go through the gamut of like, oh, you know, you should really like do this thing and that thing. Otherwise, it's not a real web app. Like, that's a weird place to start if you're a new programmer. You should just be able to do a thing and have the result not be terrible by default. <laughs> if you're trying to make the fastest thing possible, you'd write assembly, right? You wouldn't be writing web pages. You'd be writing assembly code. The abstractions are there for a reason. They provide value. They let you move faster. They let you express your idea where you couldn't otherwise. Frameworks are vital to the web. They're vital to app development. They're vital to software engineering. So saying don't use a framework is akin to saying don't build it, right? right? At the end of the day, you got to use something to make you productive. Uh, the, the, the software engineering feedback loop requires gratification, right? You need to be able to get that feedback that it, it worked. I can go to the next step. When you're having to build every single system from scratch, that feedback loop is much longer and it just doesn't work for a lot of products. So uh, you should definitely use a framework, but you should find something that matches what you're trying to achieve. Maybe your only user, you only have one, and they've got an iPhone, and that iPhone is the latest generation, which I don't know if you know this, but the latest generation of iPhone, single core performance outperforms most of our laptops by far. 
And if you look at something like even like a like an iPad Pro or some of the uh, recent Surface books with that with ARM chips that are custom silicon, they have multi-core performance that's starting to get close to. Hardware is still accelerating. It's just not accelerating like it used to. And frameworks provide the ability for us to move fast enough to build things that people can use without us getting dragged into details every single time. Can you imagine not using Prettier now to write your code? <laughs> no. no. Right? That would be so painful. No. But maybe one day we'll be more like Rust, where abstractions pay are not really that expensive. There are so many abstractions in the Rust language output that cost zero. Zero. And maybe Svelte and other similar kind of compiler technologies will help us get closer to that end goal as well. But yeah, use a framework. I would like to see people move away from, and like maybe maybe this is already happening, I don't know, but like there was for a time kind of a this fairly intense focus on like, it's just JavaScript, right? Like that was sort of the way the JSX was introduced and familiarized. It's like, it's the JavaScript you know with a little bit of special dust or whatever, I don't know what they call it. Um, angle brackets. But I, I would like to see us move to an assumption that like, for something to provide sufficient value as a framework, as an abstraction, it is quite likely that it will require either extending a language or replacing a language or doing something with the DSL. Like it, 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 the, something limiting itself to being just JavaScript is probably also limiting what it can do for you, right? Like I we, swear to we God, Jason, this. if you tell me to use Dart, I'm going to throw something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, <so> just <laughs> com compile everything, right? We need the web's Kotlin. <laughs> Oh, no. I, I thought oh. for a second they were going to say we should use C-sharp to build the oh, web. Well, Blazor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think one thing when I think about frameworks, though, too, is they're overused when you don't need them for very simplistic static sites, too. I think there there are times when I'm all for it. Building an application, don't re reinvent the wheel. But I think there's also times just do you actually need a framework? It goes back to our point of trade-offs and just thinking strategically about that too. I love what both of you have already said about the frameworks. Now there's a lot of concern around like AMP does make the internet faster. And the other thing is like, I, I trust Malt. Like he seems like a, a smart and nice guy, right? But um, it's worrying to turn over that much control. So like, what's the balance that you see there? So at least for me, I'm one of those people who kind of thinks about the web as having a document mode and an app mode. Um, and so like, I find it easier to think about these things by sort of thinking about AMP as like a hope for, for an app mode or for, for, a, for a document mode that is faster because some assumptions can be made. Um, and so like AMP as it exists today is just like, the things that had to be done to make that without without building new crap into the browser, um, you know, tries to at least live on the web as valid web content. Um, I would love to see the eventuality, uh, you know, and, and we've you know specs in flight and various things underway to try and make these real. Of like, figure out what the standards pieces are that are the assumptions those those key assumptions that and unlock a faster simpler document web and then popularize that right and make amp a just one happy path towards hitting those goals using those texts because um, to me like I, I would i would love to be able to like click a link to a news website and know that i'm not downloading a news app to present me an article that i am instead getting an article Right. I would like to, for, for those types of interactions to be that direct. AMP is currently a means to that end. Um, but to me, that just seems like something that should become a part of the web. So uh, caveat, uh, I am a member of the AMP project um, in case oh, uh, people weren't what? aware. <laughs> um, and you picked the right time to ask me since I've had a, a beer at this point um, uh, about AMP. At the end of the day, the, the, the AMP project's goal is to make the web faster. Um, and I, I know that probably sounds like I'm being a little passive about this answer, but, but the reason, the reason I'm starting there is that the technology and the implementation are not the important part. The important part is that the internet is faster, that people can use the web to access information, no matter where they are and no matter what device they're on, because there are parts of the world where the web is dying and where the web is not a useful resource. 
where most of the information in a local community is locked up inside of closed app ecosystems where you can't access it unless you download that 150 megabyte application. And I think that's the death knell of the web, right? Like the moment you stop using the web to access information, why would you use the web at all? Oh, that's now, I don't think that's true, but a lot of people feel that way. So to me, AMP's uh, mission and vision is around trying to make the web fast and better. And not necessarily the technology that is re required to do that, but the, the, the goal of getting there. And so there's a lot of things that the AMP project does to try to, to get to that goal long term, um, independent of the technology. The first one is heavy investment in open source communities. So um, uh, AMP has been a contributor to Webpack, Rollup, Preact, pretty much any open source technology you're using Babel. We have members of the AMP team that are specifically working on Babel mostly full time. And it's not something we talk about a lot because it's not something that is actually core to directly making AMP better, but it's core to the mission of AMP, which is to make the web a better place. So long-term, will there be an AMP format? Probably, but it may not be implemented using the same technologies that it is today. And uh, the, the things that Jason talked about, things like signed exchanges, um, which will allow people to do the, the, the kind of magic things that AMP does that makes it feel instant, but with any document. Um, those are really important for us to have on the web. We don't have them today. They're missing primitives that AMP solved by being very conservative in what it allowed. Um, and so I, I, I'm hopeful that long-term that the web remains and uh, in fact gets faster over time um, and that your technology choice isn't as important about how to get to that goal. And that's why Core Web Vitals exists. It's a benchmark for what is a good experience. You can use AMP and you'll probably meet that benchmark. As long as you have a good CDN in front of your site and you use optimization tools on your server, you'll probably hit it. If you're using a generic approach, you're very unlikely to hit it today. And that's just the truth of the matter for that type of application, that type of document. But long-term, I hope everyone can hit it independent of their choice of technology. Awesome. Well, that actually is a great point to jump into picks. Who wants to go first? I can go. Uh, I actually have like a couple performance related picks today. Um, one actually is an article by the same team, I think, that developed the Web Vitals, which I think is like a precursor to the Web Vitals called um, user-centric performance metrics. Um, and what I really liked about that is I think it just like kind of turns the, the, I mean, at the time, I think it turned the idea of performance on its head. Like it's not about optimizing our sites for faster, to be more competitive, but it really defined like the technical metrics that we're using in terms of like user oriented questions. And I, I really liked that perspective. So I think it's stuff, even if the web vitals now are sort of the new direction forward, I think it's worth a read. Um, and then the other one is um, a tool for Storybook actually developed at Atlassian called the Storybook Add-on, sorry, the Storybook Performance Add-on, um, where if you're someone like me who works on individual components and not a product, uh, like a design language system, for example, you can uh, sort of just you know, develop your things in isolation and have an idea of how they're performing um, by themselves. Right on, Stacey, you wanna go next? Yeah, shout out to Alex Reardon and some of the design systems team that, uh, yeah, worked on that, worked on that. Um, that's awesome that you're checking it out. Uh, let's see, for picks, I've got, I'm not doing music picks, which is shocking. Um, I have, the first pick is a performance pick. Um, it's an article called The Cost of JavaScript Frameworks by Tim Cadillac, he wrote that in April. I hope I didn't steal anybody's uh, pick, but uh, I thought that was a nice write-up, but just about you know what kinds of sites are out there today, what frameworks are they using, are they not using a framework, um, and doing an analysis of the the performance implications of that. Um, so give that a read. I think the the TLDR of that is sort of what a lot of people in this episode have mentioned is, you know just think about what you're trying to do and the trade-offs and, and make the right choice for what you're, what you're trying to do. So 
Um, that's the first pick. And the second pick, uh, let's see, how can I tie this into performance? Uh, how to uh, optimize your society um, with everything happening right now. Um, I am choosing a book called How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Um, so in this book, uh, Kendi weaves together uh, ethics, history, law, science, kind of brings it all together with his own narrative um, about how he kind of awoke to being uh, anti-racist. Um, and I think it's a good book to read, even if you think that you're not racist, because you, um, the, I think there's always an opportunity to learn and, and improve yourself. So give that a, give that a read if you have some time. Uh, I got, I got three today. Uh, they're very in line with what Stacy was talking about. Uh, one is a black owned veteran, uh, barbecue sauce company called Mutt's Sauce. Uh, I saw this tweeted by Jerome Hart, uh, Hardaway, who is actually going to be my next pick. Spoiler alert. Um, it's, uh, I just got them today and I tried them and they're fucking great. So if you need some barbecue sauce, uh, it's, it's pretty great. My next pick is Jerome Hardaway's charity that I'm on the board for, which is uh, Vets Who Code. I'm not a vet, but uh, I've known Jerome a long time and uh, it's an awesome charity. So uh, definitely donate to that. Uh, and the last one I'm going to uh, shout out is uh, Black Visions, Min- uh, Minnesota. Uh, if you look, if you have some extra dollars to give away from your uh, company that does match or something like that, that's definitely a good one. That's they're doing a lot of great stuff for the state of Minnesota right now. Um, so, yeah, that, those are those are my three picks. With uh, the one that was stolen from me, uh, but I'm really happy that it was mentioned, honestly. Um, and that's Vets Who Code. Uh, it's a not-for-profit for veterans who teach other veterans how to program and get jobs. It's phenomenal. I think it's worth your time. Um, and if you can help them out, you should. Um, and then the second one for me was uh, the article on Core Web Vitals, which I think ties into the idea around performance as a whole. Um, and these are kind of the, the idea here is these are the essential met- uh, metrics for a healthy site. So if you're doing well in these metrics, you have a healthy site that users are enjoying for your content and not because they're frustrated with your performance. I have six. Go for um, it. We got time. So, One's uh, dark. First... <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to our music, uh, they are polar opposites of the musical spectrum, which does not exist, but I'm going to pretend that there is one. Uh, first is a song called You and Me by Mute. Uh, they are a electronic marching band. Uh, so take from that what you will. Second is a song called Juno by Tesseract. Uh, they are gent, so you probably won't like it. Uh <laughs> Uh, okay, and so the non-music ones, uh, I searched, and it hasn't been suggested yet, so if anybody is somehow not aware of AST Explorer, it is a phenomenal tool, uh, and especially if you're, if you're wanting to sort of learn and play around with ASTs, um, it is a great way to sort of dive into that and see in real time how things are working under the hood. Jason tends to have about 100 tabs of AST Explorer open at any time. <laughs> I have, uh, I use one tab, so I have stored links to tabs that I've closed that I still need to get back to, and also 100 tabs of AST Explorer still open. Um, another one is the new bug fixes option in Babel preset ENV. Uh, if you are targeting Edge 16+, plus script type module, like a modern module, no module bundle setup, this is basically just a free 7 to 20% size optimization for your modern bundle which is served to 90 percent of browsers so is magic um go and turn that on it's going to be on by default in bevel 8. uh the second last one is the furter electric blackout blinds from ikea uh i'm halfway through installing these if you need blinds they are cheap they are zigbee so they are extensible that you could cut them to fit uh, there's really, I, I have nothing negative that I can say about them. Uh, they're cheaper than regular blinds. Blinds are so, expensive too. Yes, they are. So these are, they started, I think 130 bucks and they're electric remote controlled and they can be operated via Wi-Fi using Google home or Alexa. So get them if you can, they're sold out everywhere. Uh, <laughs> 
And so the last and most important one is, and everybody's probably already seen this, uh, I only moved to the U.S. recently and didn't have Netflix before, so uh, there's a documentary slash docudrama thing on Netflix called When They See Us, about the Central Park Five. Uh, watch it if if you think that uh, you want to be a sort of a moderate on the Black Lives Matter issue, uh, and it will change your mind, or it will reaffirm that you need to do something, because uh, it is shocking. So good. It's it's definitely worth watching. All right, well, I'm going to go a little direction different from all of you on picks today, which is good. So I've mentioned that I listened to the Heist podcast is what it's called, and I went and looked up one of these, basically a gang that they've been talking about various times is the Pink Panthers. They're really famous for large heists. And I watched this video, which was pretty epic. They the Pink Panthers drive these two Audis into a mall and smash into a jewelry store and like just basically smash and grab quickly and they're they're gone in under a minute I think it was it was just impressive so you can see all this security footage it's an interesting little video no one's hurt so that's that's a bonus too pretty impressive and then I'm going to pick a actual physical tool that I found very useful for running wires. I don't know if you've ever had to snake wires. It's no fun. It's, it's hard work. But I found a tool that's really useful called the Gardner Bender EFT15 mini cable. Super easy to use and it just looks like a measuring tape, but it helps snake wires through walls. So highly recommend that. Before we end the episode, I want to thank Chris and Jason. Thanks so much for joining us. You shared a lot of great information on performance. Where can people get in touch with you? Hit me up on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash under, underscore develop it. Chris? Yeah, same thing, Twitter, but not at underscore develop it. I'm at Christopher Baxter. Unless you have rude things to say, maybe. <laughs> yeah, direct yeah. your rude comments towards me. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you all for listening to today's episode. You can find Front End Happy Hour on Twitter at FrontEndHH. You can follow us on FrontEndHappyHour.com. Subscribe to us on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. Any last words? You heard it here first. Everyone, we're uh, recommending that everyone go back to table layouts for CSS, and we are done with CSS Grid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>